copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. I'm excited to continue our series of messages on wisdom. We've been talking about what wisdom is, the ability to discern and respond as we face the challenges of this life. We've also talked about the source of wisdom, that we find wisdom when we worship the Lord rightly. It unlocks wisdom in our lives. Treasuring Christ above all things connects us to things as they really are so we can really know Jesus as Savior and Lord and see things rightly. We get wisdom when we worship the Lord rightly. Today, I want to turn our attention to talking about what I believe to be one of the greatest challenges we're facing to exercising wisdom in our lives. When I talk about the challenge of wisdom, I mean to say that in 2017, I believe there are particular issues that we face, as Americans especially, that keep us from really exercising wisdom at a careful and most importantly, biblical level. One of the challenges that we face in this life is just the sheer complexity of the world we live in today. Things are complex. When we recognize that there's a 24-hour news cycle that's constantly got to come up with things to talk about, when we see the globalization of our economies and how they're all connected, when we watch what seems to be today the epidemic and ongoing political turmoil, it's difficult to make heads and tails of what's actually happening in our world today. When we also recognize the complexity, not only at the macro level, the big picture in the world, we also recognize there's a great deal of complexity in our individual lives. Some of the challenges and problems we face as a group of people oftentimes make it difficult for us to navigate life. There's constant problems that we're facing and difficult relational situations we're, ch- we're challenged with. There's the emotional kind of struggle we have in our own hearts of how to deal with those. When you put all of that together, life can be very difficult to navigate. I heard one person used to say it this way, you're either coming into a season of challenge and problem or you're coming out of one. It seems like life is constantly filled with those types of challenges. But I believe... The Word of God identifies and puts its finger on one particular challenge that if we can identify and respond to effectively, we can deal with many of the other challenges that we're facing. I want to show you from the Word of God in Proverbs chapter 8 this particular challenge we're dealing with and how in dealing with that, we can respond to a host of others. Would you please stand with me? And if we could get the lights on, that'd be great. Proverbs, thank you, chapter 8, verse 22 through 31, as we notice the challenge that we're confronting as we seek to live as people with wisdom. Proverbs eight twenty-two. we read these words. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped and before the hills, I was brought forth before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. And when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above and when he established the fountains of the deep, When he assigned to the sea its limits so that the water might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. 
like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this day, and God, we thank you for your word. As your people are gathered around your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our minds, that you would remove distraction. And God, as you speak to us this morning, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, would you help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. To understand this challenge that the scripture puts forward to us, we have to first recognize that God's wisdom is how this passage unfolds. God and the wisdom he possesses is how this passage begins. It's important that it's not just something you and I are exercising as an ability. Wisdom is something God possesses as well. In fact, wisdom, according to this passage of scripture, originates in God. It's with God, and it's personified here in this passage as something God possesses as he's creating the world. Look back in your Bibles at verse 22 and listen to how wisdom describes himself. It describes himself as a person, but insert the idea of wisdom as it's talking about this individual. It says, The Lord possessed me, that's wisdom, at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. So before the world was created and brought into being, God had wisdom and he was exercising wisdom as he brought the world into existence. If you read on and you follow along this passage, you'll notice that God talks about creating the land. God talks about creating the sea and the waters of the deep. He talks even about creating the sky and the heavens above. And in each of those three cases, God says that his wisdom that he had from the beginning was there before those things came into being, and he was exercising them as those realities came into existence. Skip down to verse 30, though, because there's an interesting nuance that God gives to his wisdom that helps us understand how wisdom works today. Still personifying wisdom here. Verse 30 says, Then I, that's wisdom, was beside him, that's God, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. You see, what this is saying is that as God made the world, he baked or he wove into the fabric of the world Not just a physical appearance and physical world that we can see with our eyes. He also wove into the fabric of the world a spiritual dimension that gives purpose and meaning and life to the world we can see. When you understand what wisdom is talking about in its relationship to the created physical world, what we recognize is that God did not just make a material physical world, God also formed a spiritual world we cannot see with our eyes. 
There's a physical world that you can behold when you look at trees and the sky above and the sea. But there's also a world behind that, a spirit world that we can't see that's connected to that physical world, giving it meaning and purpose. A few examples of this idea of being able, not being able to see it. When we think about molecular biology, molecular biology has shown us that actually at the most basic level, at the molecular cellular level in your physical body, there is complexity. There's complexity at every level of creation. And while we can behold some pretty incredible things with our physical eyes, molecular biology has shown us that there's a whole other world going on underneath the surface with all these chemical reactions and biological functions that make up each cellular organism in the world. By the way... This is one of the reasons why we don't affirm macroevolutionary theory. Because macroevolutionary theory says that we evolve from simple things to more complex. But the intelligent design movement has shown through molecular biology decisively that actually at the basic level, we are complex from the very beginning. So the point is, though I can see with my physical eyes, my physical body and, and the things happening in this world, there's a molecular world I can't really see physically that helps me know that there's other things going on. I'll give you another example. This is the way emotions work as well. Yesterday, Shelly took the boys to the pool in the, whatever it was, 70 degree weather, which meant the water was like 40 degrees. Have you found that that doesn't really affect kids? They just jump in the water and swim, teeth chattering the whole time, right? Shelly took the boys. So do you know what that means I got to do? I got to stay home with my one-year-old little Paige Allison Plumley. Now, you have to understand something about my little girl. She is the first Plumley girl in my particular family line in almost 100 years. So we've had boys and more boys and more boys, and now we have a little girl. A after which, in the first service, somebody said, now don't you spoil that little girl. Can't make you any promises. <laughs> because what happened yesterday is pretty powerful. She's, she started this process of walking up to me periodically and saying, Daddy, Daddy, and holding out her arms, Right? And when my daughter does that, I don't care if I'm in the middle of brain surgery. <laughs> I'm stopping what I'm doing, and what am I going to do? I pick her up, and I curl her in my arms, and she puts her head on my shoulder, and everything is right with the world, right? Now, while you can't see it physically with your eyes... There's a lot going on emotionally inside of me when my little girl says... Daddy, You can't prove that scientifically. You can't show all of the things that are happening. But there's this emotional thing. There's emotional response that happens when she calls for me to pick her up. In the same way, while we can't see it with our physical eyes, there's a spiritual world moving and shaping the world that we see with our physical eyes behind it, underneath it. 
And here's what's so important about this. The spiritual world or the metaphysical world gives meaning and purpose to the physical world. The way that the spiritual world and the physical world come together is through purpose and life. In other words, every single component of God's physical creation has a spiritual purpose. And here's what it is. The spiritual purpose for creation of which you and I are a part is the glory of God. We were made and we were fashioned to live for the praise and honor of Jesus Christ. That's why we've been created. But even more specifically, there are really nuanced and specific ways each component of creation contributes to the glory of God. So one of the areas of history that I've been studying feverishly, fervently, I was trying to get those two words together, uh, the last couple of weeks is World War I. World War I, for whatever reason to me, last couple of weeks has been, I've just been reading about it, uh, watching documentaries. I get on documentary binges where I like to find a particular area of history and I watch lots of things about it. One of the reasons World War I historically is so compelling is because the, the way that World War I ended directly influenced and shaped how World War II came into existence and into being. For example, did you know that one of the German generals, General Ludendorff, who was basically the chief chair of the high German high command, he was essentially the one running the war for the central powers. As the Germans begin to lose, and it's obvious that World War I is going in the favor of the Allies, Ludendorff decides that he's going to begin to blame the political left for their defeat. He says, well, the reason we're losing this war is not because of military strategy. It's the morale of our men have been undercut by these socialists and communists on the political left, by the way, many of whom were Jewish. When you take that blame that he was assigning to the political left, it became an easy out for Germany to blame those people as to why they lost the war. Don't take the blame for yourself that you just got outfought. You blame other people. It's much easier to swallow that pill of defeat if you've got someone to blame. When you coupled Ludendorff's strategy of blaming the left with the harshness of the Treaty of Versailles, all deference to our friends from Versailles, it's Versailles. <laughs> that was bizarre when we moved to Missouri. Versailles, Missouri. Treaty of Versailles was harsh in what it demanded from the central powers. It created all of these elements worked together to create this kind of tinderbox that exploded as Adolf Hitler came to power and crushed the political left and demanded that Germany kind of rise from the ashes. What I want you to know is in a beneficial way, all of the components of creation 
are to contribute, are to build to the glory of God. Now, here's why this matters so much for you and me. When we exercise wisdom well, it's when we tap in to the particular spiritual purpose that each component of our lives has as it contributes to the glory of God. We live with wisdom when we live according to the spiritual purpose God has assigned that makes an impact in the physical world. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the area of parenting, parenting, what the Word of God tells us is that parenting is more than just a biological or blood connection. Parenting is more than just clothing and feeding and educating children. What the spiritual world tells us, what God's purpose tells us, is that parenting is more than that. It's training children to not only follow Jesus, but to pass their faith on to a generation not yet born. So I live wisely when I'm not just trying to clothe and feed and survive as a parent, which is easy to do sometimes. I live wisely when I remember and live according to the spiritual purpose God has assigned to parenting. That one day, my page, Allison Plumley, would have children who would have children who would have children who love and follow Jesus with all of their hearts. How do I live wisely as a parent? It's by living according to the purpose God has assigned to parenting. Let me give you another example. What about money? It's very easy to view money just as this thing I use to put a roof over my head and to kind of survive. It's easy to view money as just something that's there to make make my basic needs kind of work in my life. But did you know that God has assigned in the spiritual world a purpose, a reason that he gives us financial resources? The purpose for money is for you and I to steward God's resources for the furtherance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and its expansion around the world. The reason God gives me money is not so I can build my kingdom. The reason Christ gives me money is so I can build his kingdom. How do I know if I'm being wise with my money? Am I living and stewarding my money according to the spiritual purpose God has assigned to money? When we live according to God's spiritual purpose that he's baked into the fabric of the physical world, we live wisely. Now, it's easy for me to say that. It's much more challenging to live that. And I want to show you why. I want to turn our attention now to why I believe this kind of wisdom is so challenging in our daily lives. Let me give it to you right up front. The reason I believe this wisdom is so challenging is because we have separated the physical world 
from the spiritual world. The reason living out and tapping into the spiritual purpose God's assigned to parenting or to money is because we've divorced, we've disconnected the physical from the spiritual. I'm going to give you a quick philosophy lesson, so just put your thinking caps on and buckle your seatbelt, okay? The reason we're doing this is because of a philosophical movement known as materialism. Materialism says that the physical, material world is all that exists, and there is no spiritual world. In other words, the answer to every one of our problems is through biological or scientific or through chemistry. Those disciplines answer the problems we face in life because the physical world is all that there is. Materialism is in the background of many Americans' thinking. What is prominent and what comes forward in many of our thinking is the idea of secularism. Because the material world is all that exists, people have adopted a view called secularism, which says it's fine for you to have spiritual beliefs that kind of inform your individual private lives. But we should keep religion and spiritual beliefs out of the public forum, out of education, out of politics, because the material world at the end of the day is all that exists. Material, secular people disconnect the physical from the spiritual. For a secular person, spiritual beliefs are nothing more than self-help trying to make yourself a better person. This is why in previous governments and other things that we've seen in America, the phrase freedom to worship has replaced religious liberty. Because many people want to say, you're free to worship in your church on Sunday morning at 1045, however you want. But don't let your spiritual beliefs inform how you manage your business. Don't let your spiritual religious convictions manage how you engage in political or in the education world. Keep your beliefs boxed in to your church life and your private life. They should never make their way into the public forum. Why do people believe that? It's because we've bought the, the lie that there is no spiritual world. It is only the material. Let me tell you where we're seeing this damage our culture the most, I think. One of the areas where we're seeing this absolutely cause just destruction in every direction is in people's view of themselves. Because the material world is all that exists, you view yourself just as a walking bag of chemical and biological reactions. There's no soul. There's no spirit. There's no foundation that defines right and wrong for your life. You kind of make it up as you go and you solve your problems, not through appealing to God or any kind of spiritual force, but by appealing to biology and chemistry to figure out your problems. This is why there's so much confusion about sexuality and gender. Why in the last especially 10 years have we seen this surge of you getting to decide your sexual identity? Of you getting to define even your own gender? It's because we've decoupled the purpose for gender, 
the purpose for sex from what God designed. And because we've decoupled and divorced the physical from the spiritual, you can make it up for whatever you want it to be. You are your own God when it comes to gender and sexuality. This is why I tell people, especially young people all the time, one of the lies being pushed on you is that sex is just a physical act. And there's no spiritual or emotional connection that comes with it. Where is that coming from? It's coming from the belief that the material world is all that exists. Sex, according to God's word, is more than just a physical act. It's a sharing of yourself with another person. Now, lest we think that material secular views of the world have just impacted New York and California, let me tell you that I believe materialism and secularism have deeply impacted how we think about ourselves and the world as well. Let me give you a quick test, okay? When you're sick, when you're physically ill, oftentimes we will go to three and four doctors to figure out what was wrong with us before we will ever pray. Or to make it more modern, we'll spend hours on WebMD only to determine we have the bubonic plague. Isn't that what always happens? That's what happens to my pretty blonde here. She'll get on the internet, type in her symptoms, says we have scarlet fever. What? We'll spend hours on that thing before we'll ever text a group of friends to pray for us because we're sick. Why do we do that? It's because we've decoupled the physical from the spiritual. Let me give you another example. When you're offered a job promotion that means more money, but it also means you have to relocate or you have to change your family schedule significantly, we will look at the housing market. We will look at the schools and the new community we're considering. We'll examine the cost of living and the bottom line increase in our budget before we'll ever consider the spiritual impact it's going to make in our families. Where this really used to hit is as a college pastor, when I would sit down with moms and dads praying about where their sons or daughters were going to go to school, and they would tell me about the education program that they have and the the great football team that the school has, and never once talk about how are your children going to be spiritually nurtured in this new place they're moving. Why is it so easy to think about the job and the housing market and all of these other elements and never consider the spiritual impact? It's because... We've divorced the physical from the spiritual. Let me give you one more example. When you have anxiety, or you're depressed, or you're discouraged, our culture says the answer is go to a medical professional who can write you a prescription and deal with your anxiety, and deal with your depression, and deal with these emotional problems you're dealing with. We have bought, as I heard one person say, the magic of the mouth. If I put the right thing in my mouth, all of my problems go away. 
we will do all of these things medically before we will ever open ourselves up to someone who cares about us with a Bible to talk about what's going on in our lives emotionally. Why are we so quick to apply medical solutions to spiritual problems? It's because we've divorced the physical from the spiritual. Now let me quickly clarify something as your pastor. I do not want you to hear me say there's never a situation in which you should take medication for mental or emotional problems. That is not what I'm saying. But I will tell you that in our current culture, we are assigning prescription medication at an epidemic level, an unsustainable level, in ways that I think are going to hurt us as a culture. I am not saying that you should never be in any circumstances or any situation to take prescription medication for emotional or mental issues that you're dealing with. But at the same time, don't miss that some of the reason we quickly defer to that is because we've decoupled the spiritual from the physical. The reason this is so dangerous for us is simply this. When we separate the physical from the spiritual, we replace worship of God with worship of self. You see, materialism isn't so much the rejection of God, it's the replacement of God. Secularism isn't so much the replacement of purpose and worship, or the rejection of it, excuse me, it's replacing it. Think back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve, and he tells them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on that day you'll die. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent shows up and begins to tempt Adam and Eve to eat from this tree. And when he comes to Adam and Eve, he doesn't come just saying, reject God's authority. He comes tempting them to replace God's authority. Do you remember what he says? He says, when you eat from the tree, you will be like God. You see, within every human heart is a desire to worship. Material, secular people, it's not that they stop worshiping God, it's that we start worshiping ourselves. Within every human heart, as it's been written, there's this whole and we're going to fill it with something. We're going to worship something. And material, secular people, while they might think they're scientific and free from religious belief, actually are really believing and trusting in something, just like people of faith are. There's a group out of Wisconsin called the Freedom From Religion Organization. Some of you may have heard of them. The Freedom From Religion Organization basically is a, is a group that believes religion and spiritual expression should be eradicated or removed from the public sphere. Uh, any overt reference to God or to Jesus in education or in publicly funded reality uh, institutions are as forbidden. And so they as an organization exist to write letters and to sue and to scare people of faith from even mentioning their faith in an overt way in public, especially if they're employed by the state. 
What I want you to know is that the freedom from religion people claim that they are non-religious. They are people of science. It reminds me of Nacho Libre. I believe in science. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Tim Badalato and I are Nacho Libre fans. Uh, there's a character there that says he believes in science, whereas the other guy really believes in God. Science ultimately cannot answer where you come from, why you exist, what's right and wrong, and what happens to you when you die. Science cannot answer those questions as a process. Secular people have just as much faith as people who are called Christians because we're all filling in these gaps that we don't have because of human limitations. You're either filling it in with God and his revelation and his word in Jesus, or you're filling it in with what you think you figured out rationally on your own. But do not miss, especially younger people in the room who are impacted by secularism in really profound ways, everyone has faith. The question is not whether you're trusting something. The question is not whether you're worshiping something. The question is, what are you worshiping? Even in secular Europe, which by secular people in America is hailed as this paragon of secular society, one of the growing phenomena in Europe is that paganism is on the rise. Europeans, in record number, especially in Scandinavian countries, are beginning to worship again Thor and the gods of thunder. And it's not just because Marvel Comics is making good movies, although I think that's a part of it. It's because we've got to worship something. The reason material secular views of the world are so pervasive in our culture is because they appeal to your sinful heart to be the main character of your own life. The reason even we as believers can drift into a material, secular view of the world is because it makes you and I the main character and gods of our own universe. So let me ask you a question. How has materialism impacted you? In what ways has a material and secular view of the world impacted who you are, especially for those of you that are Christian? Let me just replay a couple of examples I gave you. If in your parenting, you focus exclusively with your children on their athletics, on their academics, on their extracurricular activities, and you never talk about their spiritual development in Christ, you have been impacted by secular views of the world. How about your money? If in the deployment of your resources, especially your money, it never is used in a generous way for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom around the world, and it's just being used for your own kingdom, you have been impacted by a material view of the world. You've disconnected the material from the spiritual. That's the bad news. Let me finish by giving you some good news. There is a remedy to materialism. Look back at your Bibles at verse 30 and 31. Verse 30, still talking about wisdom, says, Then I, that's wisdom, was beside God like a master workman. 
And I, that's wisdom, was daily his, that's God's delight, rejoicing before him always. Notice verse 31, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. The Bible says that wisdom, in this personified sense, is rejoicing not only at God's creation, but specifically the inhabited world of people. And I believe, along with many commentators, that what this is pointing to is that God is taking pleasure as he looks down the corridors of time, seeing that he's going to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation for his glory. I believe, in fact, Proverbs chapter 8 is probably what John had in his mind when in chapter 1, verse 1 of his gospel, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because what this is pointing to is that at the beginning of time, God is looking down the corridors of time and saying, He's going to redeem a people for His glory. See, our problem is that we've spiritually rebelled against God in our hearts, worshiping ourselves, and it's resulted in all manner of physical rebellion as well. You see, the reason we lie and manipulate and cajole to get what we want is because we're worshiping ourselves. The reason we lust and look at others with hatred in our hearts is because we think that we're the masters of our own universe. And what the Bible says is because this spiritual rebellion is going on in our lives, manifesting in physical disobedience and sin, God has assigned a punishment to our sin. But at the right time, the Bible tells us that one steps forward to reconnect the spiritual and the physical. The one that came forward to reconnect these two worlds is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life, fully spiritually submitted to the Father, showing us in his humanity what it looks like to really be human. And when Jesus goes to the cross, he offers his life to make payment for our spiritual rebellion by suffering in his physical body for our sins. Jesus Christ is the one that reconnects the physical and the spiritual so that if we repent and trust Christ, we can live to God spiritually for the purpose we've been made and in our physical lives, God can begin to change us from the inside out. Last night we were reading the Bible in our homes and we got to the place in the big picture story Bible where Jesus is crucified. And Seth was very contemplating and looking at that and he looked at me at one point and he said, Dad, I understand that someone had to die for our sin, but but did it have to be Jesus? Couldn't, I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. Couldn't it have been someone else? that suffered and died for our sin? And I said, well, son, the the reason Jesus had to die is because he's the only one who's ever been perfect. He's the only one that could offer his life as an innocent substitute. He's the only one 
that could offer us the divine exchange. You see, Jesus gets my sin and suffers and dies. But by faith, I get Jesus' righteousness. There's an exchange that happens. And the only way that happens is if Jesus Christ is perfect, innocently dying on my behalf. Imagine you have a rich uncle that calls you one day and says, you don't know who I am, but I'm filthy rich. I've got more money than I know what to do with, and I've helped all my immediate relatives. I've decided I'm going to start finding people that I'm connected to by blood, and I'm going to help them too, and you're one, one of these people on my list. I'd like to pay off your mortgage on your house for you. Pretty sweet deal. So you work out the details. He flies into town. You go pick him up from the airport, and he says, take me right to the bank. I want to take care of this right away. So you walk into the bank. You sit down with the banker. The banker says, well, rich uncle, here's how much Spencer owes on his mortgage. The rich uncle gets out his checkbook, and he writes the check for that amount and rips it off and hands it to the banker. What's the banker going to do next after he gets the check for thousands of dollars? He's going to go in the back and verify that there's the funds in this man's account to cover my debt, right? You see the banker in the back walking around on the phone, looking at the internet, finding out what's going on. He comes out of the back office and he says, yep, you've got sufficient funds to cover your debt. Your mortgage is now paid for. And I go in the parking lot and I shout, hallelujah, right? As any of us would if that happened. When Jesus dies on the cross and when he comes back to life, he's verifying the check that will pay for our redemption. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm going to cover your debt for your sin. But the only way that's possible is if I have the righteousness and forgiveness in my account as the Savior of the world that's going to cover your debt. And when you and I turn from our sin and we trust Jesus Christ, His righteousness that, has it, that He has in His account that could cover the sins of the whole world is then applied to your life. And from that day forward, you and I are forgiven. The only way the spiritual and the physical can be reconnected is if we turn to Jesus, trusting Him that He died and that He rose again on the third day. Some of you in this room today need to turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ. Some of you today here are trusting yourself. You're trusting your good works. You're trusting the nice things that you think you've done. Some of you may even be trusting religious experiences. Maybe you were sprinkled as a child or you went through some kind of process of confirming you. Please understand this. The only thing that can save you is trusting Jesus Christ alone. A Christian is not somebody that always has the right behavior, always has the right outward actions. 
A Christian is a person who's turned from their sin and trusting Jesus, relying and depending on Him, believing that He and His cross finished the work that you need done in your life. The way that you and I receive forgiveness is not by rituals that we go through in religious practice. It's by trusting Jesus and Jesus alone. Some of you today, for the first time, need to turn from trusting yourself, repenting of trusting your own ability, and you've got to trust Jesus. But some of us this day who are Christians, turning and trusting Christ is not something we do when we first come to Christ and it's over. Some of us need to repent of secularism and materialism and the way we parent our kids. Some of us need to quit being surprised when we apply material views of parenting to our children only to find them abandoning the faith when they go to college. Don't be surprised if you've made their athletics and their academics and their extracurriculars the thing and then they continue to make them the thing when they go away to school. We're surprised when that happens. But part of what I'm pleading with you to do today is to repent of divorcing these two realities and embracing the fact that they are connected. Every part of your life is serving to the glory of God. Some of you may need to repent about how you're viewing your money. Spencer, you've talked about my money over and over again. That's right. It's because it's not your money. It's God's money. And the reason we talk about money here a lot is because the Bible tells us where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. There's a link there. Some of us this morning may need to turn and repent of secular material views of how we use our finances. My prayer for you and I is that we would remember that when we decouple the material, physical world from the spiritual, it's not that we stop worshiping, it's that we start worshiping the wrong thing. Would you please pray with me, church? Father, I pray for our time in the Word this morning. God, I thank you that your Word shows us that the physical and the spiritual worlds are connected in profound ways. I pray for anyone here today who maybe for the first time is realizing they're not trusting Jesus. They're trusting themselves. I pray that you would show them the folly and the deception and the destruction that comes from sin. And I pray that you would turn their hearts afresh to seeing and beholding the beauty of what Jesus has done for them. God, I pray that your people continue to turn and trust you. Father, I pray for families in this room that have to get honest about their parenting, how they're using their money, that we really in a lot of ways look no different than the world because we've applied the same worldview of secularism and materialism. God, would you give us the courage to have hard conversations this afternoon and to repent and turn from viewing our resources that you've given us in this way. And God, would we afresh embrace the spiritual purpose for everything in our lives, which is to glorify and praise you. 
God, we're asking you to do that in our midst. Lord, as I even say that now, I, I acknowledge my limitations. As a teacher of your word, I can't change people's hearts, Jesus, but you can. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would touch people's hearts all over this room. And as we continue to worship this morning, that you would continue to press in our hearts deeper and deeper the ways you've called us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.